0: This plenary talk, Good, by John McCord, was presented at Veritas's Community Training 2023. Enjoy. All right, I want to start my talk uh, this morning with a parable. This is our dog, Homer. Thank you, Rebecca. kid. This is our dog, Homer. He's a Boykin Spaniel. We got him for Christmas this past year. If you don't know anything about a Boykin Spaniel, uh, they are the state dog of the state of South Carolina. So, you know, represent your state, I guess. Uh, but they were bred specifically to be small water retrieving dogs. So sometimes they're called uh, the little brown, little brown dog because they're just little little dogs that can jump in and out of a, of a uh, little canoe, like in a swamp, go and retrieve your duck and hop back into the canoe without upsetting you and dumping you over, unlike a big like Labrador retriever or something like that. So they're made for the water, and uh, that's what they're designed to do. But one funny thing about our dog Homer is... Um, Homer was terrified of the water. He, he would not go anywhere near it. And at first I thought something was maybe broken. But when I realized, like, no, we, we got him so that he could retrieve and, and get out in the water, we had to kind of walk backwards from where we wanted him to go back to how do we get him there. So I went to Walmart and I bought just a cheap little plastic pool. And that plastic pool first was just empty. There was no water in it. And I would get in with a treat and I would call Homer to me have him hop in and it took him a while he was afraid of that you know big scary blue pool and he would hop into the dry pool and I would go get out of the pool and I would call him out and he would hop out and I would give him a treat and I would get back in and I would call him to me and he'd get in and we did that for a couple of days to where he would just go in and out he realized it wasn't so bad and then we started to put an inch of water at a time into the pool and so now he was getting his paws wet and that was pretty exciting because now he could stand in the water, but he didn't, uh, while that was fine, he didn't mind standing in the water, we didn't want him just to stand in the water, we wanted to actually learn how to put his face in the water to get a bird or you know whatever it is that we, we eventually want to get that bird out. So we uh, taught him by getting a piece of wood, and that piece of wood might, might stay on the water, but he had to learn to actually put his face under the water. This is the first training session with him, trying to figure out how to get that thing out of the water. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing, nothing in his mouth. Uh, So even though he was made to do this, this is not what he wanted to do. So eventually he uh, got to where he would kind of paw up the piece of wood off the bottom of the pool. It would come up to him, he would grab it off the top of the water, you know, and get his treat, and that was fine. And we progressed from there to rocks and golf balls and things that he could not get up off the bottom of the pool. And so he had to learn to put his face and breathe out while under the water to bring out rocks. There you go. And so now we could take him to any body of water that we want. And again, here, a pretty rapidly flowing river, but he'll go out and get it and bring it back. And it's now all he wants to do all the time. Is if you take him to a body of water, that's what he wants to do for hours on end. And he'll actually, it's kind of scary, he'll actually work himself to death if you let him. Because that's what he wants to do. And if y'all have retrievers, you know that that's true about them. And that's a parable. Today I want to talk about good? What is good? If you don't trout fish, which is totally fine, but I'll pray for you. If you don't trout fish, um, you may not recognize or you might look at these different fish and you might very clearly and quickly think that one of these fish is good and one of them is not. What you may not know is the fish on the left is a native brook trout, which is a specific kind of fish that only really exists in this area, in western North Carolina, just, just up on us. And people actually travel from all over the world to get these beautiful little fish. They come from all over. You might have naturally, though, or instinctively looked at that fish on that right, the the beautiful 26-inch brown trout, and thought, that's a good fish. Because though good is this word that we use all the time, I don't know how much time you all have spent just thinking about what do we mean when we say good? We use this word almost ubiquitously, but, but have we really thought about it? So I want us to take a moment at our tables here and try to come up with some big categories of meaning around the word good. Now, some of you, even before I set you this assignment, you might be thinking of something like you know, Mark 10, where Jesus says, there is no one good except God alone. Only God is good, right? And you're like, oh, I'm pretty clever. I quoted a Bible verse. That's a misunderstanding of what Jesus teaches. So here's one other quote. This is from Matthew 5, where uh, at the end, where he's talking about how, how good God is and how just and loving and almost almost unjust in the sense that he sends his rain, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So if you're tempted already this morning to say, like, well, there's no such thing as good or only God is good, I want to suggest that like you cast that out. And just think about how you or how your children Use that word in day to day speech. I'm going to give you three minutes at the table to see what kind of categories of good. What do you mean when you say good? Go. All right, we'll come back together now. I'm not sure what definitions or what ideas came up at, at your different tables, um, but I want to provide kind of some different examples of what you might think of as good. So those of you who know me know that I like barbecue, I like cooking barbecue. And uh, frequently I get asked, you know, oh, have you been to such and such place? And I'll say, oh, is their barbecue any good? Right? And, or, you know, do you like it? And don't, don't ask me that question unless you want a really honest answer, by the way. But um, anyway, this is uh, a picture of a, a, a buddy of mine. We went to go pick up a new custom smoker in Texas. So we turned it into a barbecue road trip uh, through the south and made our way down to Austin and, and hopped in line at Aaron Franklin's barbecue at 430 in the morning. Because if you want to get Aaron Franklin's barbecue, you have to go get in line six plus hours before they open. It's pretty good barbecue. (laughs) And maybe in your examples, you came up with different kinds of ideas, or these are just things that I try to keep my ears open for, you know, did you have a good day? Yeah, I had a good day, mom. Uh, He's a good guy, you know, tell me about him. He's a good guy. Do you know a good contractor? That's one that's being said in Greenville right now a lot. Uh, You have good eyes or good teeth, good genes, good genetics. Uh, You're a good teacher. Or I made a good decision. We use this word good all over the place. And as a matter of fact, in the Bible, just in the Old Testament, the, the, the word good or the adjective I'm going to focus on specifically here occurs over 500 times in the Old Testament. It is a pretty common, pretty important word. You, you can't get out of Genesis 1, for example, without many uses of the word good. And maybe you all found this at your table, or maybe even just those examples of like you know good teeth, or a good contractor, uh, or had a good day. Uh, it kind of covers a, a variety of meanings. I'll just kind of quickly go through these. Uh, these are all from the Old Testament. Some of these don't use the word good in English. For example, his fair in his eyes. Uh, to be sweet-scented, good-scented, pleasing to the senses. And maybe that's something that came up to you. Like, oh, is it, is it good barbecue? It, yeah, it pleases my, my tongue. Maybe it's pleasing to something higher than that. For example, it was a good day or good tidings. It's excellent of its kind. It's fertile land. It's good land. It is valuable, good, rich, like reaching a good old age. Appropriate or becoming. It was not good for a soul to be without knowledge. It's not appropriate. It doesn't belong to the soul to be ignorant. Benign, kind words, good words. And one more. Ethically right. They were, they were good deeds. But I want to zoom in or I want to focus and, and, and kind of let us just sit with the words of Jesus when a student came to him and said, Good teacher. Jesus stops him, and he asks the question, why do you call me good? And what I want to invite us to do together for the next 30 minutes is just think about this. Why do we call blank good? Why do we use this word? What do we mean by this word? When our kids tell us they had a good day, where's that coming from? With our seniors in their economics class uh, two years back now, seniors and juniors who are now all off to college and doing their college thing, tear, tear. No, I asked them, part of our economics course, we read a book uh, by an old Greek philosopher named Xenophon. He was actually a general, uh, but he was a student of a guy named Socrates. And the book's called The Economist, the um, which just means the one who runs a house. Well, we would say runs a house because we are busy and we like to run a lot, but they would have said one who rules the house. So we have rules of the house versus, you know, we'll say things like, you know, I run a house because we don't like rules in America. We'd like to run, I guess, more. But anyway, I asked them uh, at the start of this book because one of the things that Socrates says is the most important economic decision you'll ever make is whom you marry. Because the job for Socrates 2,400 years ago in Greece was you had the man, basically, who would go out and work, and he would bring good things into the household. And then you had the woman who was at home, and she herself was then the stewardess of the good things that were brought in, as well as of the children and the servants. Not a ton of that has changed in 2,400 years. And so the word economist, or oikonomikos uh, or oikonomica, is used for the one who runs the household whether that's external things like fields, crops, the shop, or internal things like the children and the things that come in. So I asked the seniors, I said, before we got reading it, I just said, you know, what makes someone a good spouse? Now, you may not think that like 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds would have a whole lot of thoughts on what a spouse uh, would need to be or would need to to be like and their character to be good. But here's the list that they came up with. This is their list, 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds. Ready? A good spouse is faithful, loyal, truthful and honest, hardworking and determined, well-rounded, able to protect the family or makes me feel safe, joyful, content, self-sacrificial, honors God, doesn't love money or fame, communicates well, has good hygiene. Amen. (laughs) Listens, tells me when I'm out of line, is patient, can cook, is funny, and has a good relationship with their parents. It's their list. Where did that come from? I, I doubt that they were sitting in lectures, you know, or like watching TED Talks or something. on like, man, I really am getting big into like spousal research. Like it's probably just not happening. That's just not what was going on. But there's this funny thing about the word good. My wife and I grew up in Texas, and and nobody had to give us a lecture on the form of good in the state of Texas. You know it. In order to be a good young man, you need to be the quarterback or some kind of captain of the team. And of course, to be a good young lady, you need to be a cheerleader or have something to do with the team. Football is such a big deal in Texas that the national all-star game, like the the high school all-star game, is called Texas versus the nation. Texas has a clear understanding of what good is. It knows what it wants you to become. And I was listening to an interview just last week uh, with a woman who writes for the Washington Post, and she had a a piece that went absolutely viral. You could look it up. Uh, But but basically, it's it's she as a a woman working and living in Washington, D.C., what she is seeing currently as the crisis of manhood. And I was listening to this interview with her, and, and the speaker, or the interviewer, pardon me, said to her, like, so, so what, what do you think is going on? And she said, you know, at the root, I think what's going on is we don't know what a man is supposed to be. We don't know what a good man is. And maybe that's because we've tried to say, like, hey, there's no such thing as good. And, and you're good just the way you are, like Bruno Mars, right? You're amazing just the way you are. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. That record deal, is forthcoming. No, um, no, like, and, and so we've tried to be like nice and loving and kind, and we don't want people to feel bad. So just whatever you are, and whatever you do, that's good, you're amazing, you're beautiful, on and on and on. Our first philosophical concept of the day. Big fancy pants word, the transcendentals. Anything over three syllables, I think, is a fancy pants philosophical or mathematical word. It's scary, I know. But the, the word transcendental just means that it goes across. The transcendentals are properties that things have that aren't just limited to one thing. That all that exists, all that is, actually in some way shares and is like other things that exist. It transcends just the individual. And actually the first transcendental is that. It's existence. That if you are, you are. And other things that are, you're also like them. Because you are and I are and the mic stand are. No, is. Sorry. English, it's a verb. You just change the verb. Okay. Anyway, so like existence. Everything that is, is. And this is really important, actually, when you think about the name of God in the Bible. When he reveals his name to Moses in Exodus 3, right, he says, my name is I Am, right? And that's what the name Yahweh means. It's actually the third person form. But the one who is, at its very root, His very definition of God is the one who always has been, right? And then he makes us and he creates us so that we also are. We share in his godlikeness just because we exist. Second transcendental, unity. Unity. Things that are and that are moving more and more to being are actually whole. Whole. Now, as we go down this list, you're going to get more and more offended, so it's going to be great. Okay. So I'm just going to try to preempt that just a little bit. But if you think about something like a surgery, right? where, man, I had to have a leg removed, or, or I fought for my country and I lost an arm, you, you have lost unity of being. It does, does not mean you're evil, but there's something that has started to break down. Or you think about a tree that has a limb that starts to die, and so you have to remove it. That tree's unity, so to speak, has been compromised. You could also think about it as undistracted. Right, which constantly afflicts us now in this day, right, where, man, I feel like you know, my mind is being pulled in eight different directions. This is not good. Nobody's like, I'm so glad that I have 7,000 things on my plate. If you say that, you can just pray about that. Like, Why does that feel good to me? Goodness is one of these things transcendentals. It's something that is not about a particular thing, being good, but that actually everything that is, that fulfills its form, which we're going to talk about in a second, that is actually, it's growing in goodness. Truth. The name of the school is Veritas. That is what Veritas means, is truth. And the last one, if you have heard this, if you've been here or you've gone to other conferences, you know that usually when we talk about transcendentals, we talk about three things, goodness, truth, and beauty. Now, we're not going to talk about beauty, but I'll just tell you now that the whole reason we're talking about good this year is because in two years, I want to talk about beauty, but I couldn't talk about beauty until I talked about truth and goodness. So it's a three-year buildup. So get ready. Next year, we're going to talk about truth. This year, we're going to talk about lies. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so all the transcendentals they have to, they need to operate together. If you want to think of them as a choir or an orchestra, they need to sing together. Okay? You, you, it's very hard, for example, to be good while embracing falsehood. Right? You're never like, man, he's a really good guy. He just lies all the time. Right? Or on the, the same thing, man, she is so just truthful. She speaks the truth, um, but she's really wicked. Like, really? What, what is it about? You know, like these things often go together. They sing together. So I just want to provide a couple of visuals of what that looks like. We were driving through Colorado last year, and um, I don't know what it was, but I just looked out my car to the left, and I just, man, that's beautiful. This mountain, it's called Blanca Peak. It's a 14,000 foot mountain in Colorado, but one of the really neat things about it is it's like completely isolated from the the mountain ranges, the Rockies, it's actually part of a different mountain range in Colorado. I don't know what it was about that mountain, but we were just driving down the road and we didn't crash, but you can actually see we were just driving. I was like, I gotta get a picture of that. I was arrested by its beauty and I had to do it. And it was also interesting because it was by itself, but in itself I could see the whole mountain. It's a beautiful thing. Like, there's just something good about God's creation. If you are not following pictures that are getting sent back by the James Webb telescope, you should do that. Because the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. One of the really neat things about what this telescope is sending back is you just get beauty upon beauty, and that is a goodness of God's existing creation that he made. Like We need more and more beauty. Or again, if you're surrounded by master gardeners, you can see that. Man, this is somebody who knows the truth about what it takes for different kinds of plants to flourish to create a unified, whole piece of art. But I said we'll talk about the idea of form. Second major philosophical concept for me. I know some of you who have been here long enough, you know these, and you're like, come on, man. These are four ways you can answer the question why. The first why would be why does wood float? Wood floats because it's less dense than water, right? And that's the material cause. Second cause, why did the gun go off? Well, the gun went off because I pulled the trigger. That's called the efficient cause. It's about the force that acted on it. In the physical sciences, these are the two primary causes or the two primary whys that we answer. It's things that we can put under a microscope or that we can run in a physics problem, right? Engineers in the room, right? Like this is what you're working on. You're working on the materials and the way that these materials act and interact upon each other. But whether you're an ancient philosopher or a more modern philosopher like C.S. Lewis, you'd say, like, those are great and those matter, they're important. But the other two causes, the other two ways that we answer the reason why, matter even more. And they matter in a way that, that the first two don't. They matter to a degree that the first two don't. The third cause, the formal cause... We talked about this uh, a couple years ago at training and came up a bunch last year, of course, as well. But for those of you who are new, um, the form, the form, you could think of it as as the shape of something. Now, we're almost immediately tempted to think of it as like a physical ideal. okay? But when we actually look at a piece of art, so I just want to use two of these pictures. I won't look at all of them, but um, in the top middle you have Michelangelo's La Pieta. And when Veritas came together 11 years ago for its first community training, tomorrow we have picture study. That's what we looked at 11 years ago. When the community of Veritas first gathered 11 years ago in one place, we looked at that sculpture. And for the last two years, I've gotten to take our seniors over to Italy to look at that sculpture. Really special. But that sculpture is, simply put, Mary holding the broken body of Jesus. That is the form of human flourishing for men and women. Just think about that. The form of flourishing for a human being consists of one of two things. Giving your life away to the fullest, to the death for those you love, and being willing to let someone you love give away their life to the fullest. In the bottom, we have a Medal of Honor award winner. He is not on this photo because he's an amazingly attractive man. He is a man that is recognized as having given away his life for the country, and so we give him the highest honor that you can receive, the Medal of Honor. Form is not about something external, necessarily, okay? though we use this phrase in sports. For example, if you watch British sportscasters, you know, they'll say like, oh man, he's he's on good form. But you'll also hear British sportscasters say things like if somebody cheats or they flop in soccer, which happens all the time, right? They'll say like, oh, it's bad form. They don't mean he's unhealthy physically. They mean that his evil of soul came out on the field. That's what they're talking about. He's cynical, And the fourth cause is the final cause. It's the ultimate purpose. It's the telos, the so what. And so C.S. Lewis, when he's writing in the 40s and the 50s, uh, he says, you know, the, the, the problem that I see with us is we have lost our formal, what does it mean to be a human, and our final so what causes. So many of the breakouts, I will just tell you now, We'll try to address and try to look at not just the you know how do you do math or how do we do literature or something like that, but actually like so what? What does it matter if you can read a book or not? What does it matter if you know anything at all about the human body? What is it so what? And I'll just tell y'all, I, I think we are in a time that is starving for so what. We are star- like tell me what it means to live well and why it matters. We do not have midlife crises. We have formal and final cause crises. We desperately need the what. What are we aiming at? So I want to just share with you a couple of Bible passages that I think could could help us as we kind of try to bring home this idea of like, man, what is good? So some of these from Genesis. God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. It's the end of the creation account in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, after man is created, you see, it is not good that man should be alone. The first not good, and maybe y'all have heard this already, but I just want to kind of beat this dead horse if I need to. This is before sin. Nori already touched on it. It is not good to be alone. It is not good to be alone. Adam was not sinful, but it was not good for even a perfect man to be alone. Don't be alone. Please don't be alone. This morning as I was driving here, I saw a a group of kids waiting for the school bus. There were five kids, five out of five were on their phone. They were standing within seven feet of each other. Don't be alone. From Genesis 3, really interesting Genesis 3. Oh man. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. This is talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She sees that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We're going to come back to this again, but let me just suggest you something. This is sinless Eve. Sinless. But something looked good to her that was not good for her. But it looked good to her. And one more passage from Lamentations 3. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. See if you can hear this from a suffering Jeremiah. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And I wonder if you asked Jeremiah that or or when Christ says something similar in Matthew 5 where he says, Blessed, it is good for you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is not speaking to or speaking from a perspective of somebody who's got life easy and everything's going well. It's actually spoken in the context of someone who is suffering about the goodness of that suffering. And I don't know... That we would look at, naturally, we would look at suffering and hardship and say, this is so good. This is good that I'm suffering. Because I don't want to put my nose under the water. I don't want to. It's very uncomfortable to put my nose under the water. Plato, when he talks about the goal of education, he says this. He says that the rightly educated, the, 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 the telos student, the, the one who's filling out his form student, is one who would see most clearly whatever was amiss in ill-made works of man or ill-grown works of nature and with a just distaste would blame and hate the ugly even from his earliest years and would give delighted praise to beauty, receiving it into his soul and being nourished by it so that he becomes a man of gentle heart. Our problem is this, and I don't know if you can perceive it in there. Our problem is this, is that as human beings, we look at things, oops, pardon me. As human beings, we look at things and we don't perceive them rightly. We don't feel right about what's good for us and not. From the book of Jonah, Jonah is complaining. I don't know if you remember this. I'm sorry, I won't put it up. The book of Jonah at the very end, throughout the whole book, Jonah is so mad that he has to go to these wicked, evil Assyrians and give them the word of the Lord. And if you read the book of Jonah, which I strongly, strongly recommend, you can never read that book enough, especially if you'll put yourself in Jonah's position. I don't want God's mercy to go to the people who have been jerks to me, I don't want them to experience God's goodness. And so Jonah, being a good brat that he is, right, he goes the other way. And the irony throughout the book of Jonah is God loves Jonah just as much as God loves the Assyrians. Even though Jonah doesn't want to extend that goodness and that mercy to them. And so at the very end, I don't know if you remember this, but he goes in and he comes to Nineveh and he says, you're all going to be destroyed. And then he gets a lawn chair and he goes outside of the city and he literally sits down to watch the fireworks. Like He just plops his butt down and he's like, this could be a pretty cool show, like meteors striking the city. I don't know what he imagines is going to happen, but that's literally what he does. And God, in his mercy to Jonah, Jonah is starting to get a sunburn. And as a pale Scottish white guy, I will tell you, I'm so sympathetic to Jonah. Okay, God grows a, some kind of a vine up over his head to just keep him from getting a sunburn on the bald spot on the back of his head. That is how good and merciful God is to Jonah. And then God sends a little uh, talaat, a little, uh, I almost said cucumber. What do you call those things? Worms. There you go. I think a worm eating a cucumber. Anyway, so he sends a worm, and the worm eats the plant. And the plant wrinkles, and it falls over, and it dies. And now Jonah gets a worse sunburn. And God says to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Supposed to be a rhetorical question, Jonah. But he says, Yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. And of course, God's saying, I made it grow. It was my work that made it grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, not to mention the cattle, Last last word in the book of Jonah is don't forget about the animals. It's really interesting, by the way, for a theology of God's good creation. But don't want to digress on how awesome animals are. Here's what Jonah doesn't understand. Here's what we don't understand. Here's what we don't get is our emotions, our affections, the things that we naturally would say, that's really good, are not good. They're not good. Right? It's the classic child eating his broccoli, or John McCord eating his broccoli. Like, no, that's not good. You know what's good? Krispy Kreme. That's what's good. And so our hearts are off. Right? We, we pity and we throw a fit over this plant. And we don't care for 120,000 people who are perishing And I used to think this was a metaphor, but more and more in the year 2023, I actually start to think this is maybe more literal. They literally do not know their right hand from their left. And it's tempting to look at people who don't know their right hand from their left and take on the Jonah perspective. God just burn them all to the ground, man. They deserve it. They don't know their right hand from their left. But in the book of Hebrews, the author to the Hebrews, um, won't read the whole chapter here, we're going to skip through it a little bit, but, but basically what he's doing is he's trying to talk about who Jesus is. And he's talking about that, that tricky little section on Jesus being a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And he has to stop himself. And he says, I can't even say anything more about this because you all are such babies, you can't even stomach it. He literally says, "Like I want to give you good adult food but you have to drink mother's milk because you're babies. So we can't talk about these more nuanced, difficult things. And that's not said in condemnation because he actually then gives them a, so what, how do you do this? And he says this when he's talking about this food. He says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Solid food is for the mature, We don't need to be upset or disappointed or angry with our students or ourselves or our teachers when they seem to struggle between knowing what is good and what is not good. If you ask most kids what their favorite part of their school day is, they will tell you either recess or lunch. You don't get to judge them because if I asked you what was your favorite part of the day, you would say not having my kids at home. Right? Our definition of good is flawed. And we don't have to be mad about that. I just, Man, I love human beings. We just got to love human beings like God loves human beings, y'all. He does not look at us and He does not look at our children and say, man, if y'all could just get it together. He looks at us like He looks at Ninevites. He says they just need the Word. So it's, it's for the mature. And, and you know what? Like I'm not very mature. This is true. Uh, just this week I had my annual checkup. And I told the doctor I have not been sleeping very well. And he said, Well, okay, well, you need to you know, turn off uh, screens and things you know, by 9 o'clock and just kind of start to calm down. So, okay, all right, all right, okay, because I, I have this idea, right? I'm going to get more sleep and all these good things are going to happen from that. Well, there was a double episode of Master Chef on that night and, uh, and the Republican debate. So, uh, not only did I not go to sleep early, but I stayed up later than I had any other day that week. Stephen St. John says, "If uh, what does he say? Uh, If the main problem with humans was knowledge, we would all be millionaires with six-pack abs. You can think about that. What's wrong with us? Well, what's wrong with us is that our our powers of discernment are off. The word and why I put the Greek on is some of these words. Sorry, I'll go back one. The word in Greek for mature is it's related to our word telos." completion, fulfillment, mature. The word on this one, this powers of discernment, it's related to the word aesthetics. Aesthetics. And I am going to give you a quiz, Nori knew. How did you know I was going to give them a pop quiz here in just a second? It's amazing that you had that somewhere in your brain. But I am going to give you a quiz to check on your powers of discernment and see how you discern good or evil. Well, how do you grow? How do we grow our children's powers of discernment? And it's very clear. We have to train constantly. We are constantly as teachers and as parents to be giving our children gymnastic exercises. I know that might be kind of hard to see, but G-U-M, if you can see it, kind of G-U-M-N. We must constantly get our kids in the gymnasium of choosing of looking at something, weighing it out, and choosing. Several of you were like, oh, there's so many great breakout sessions. How do I choose? Welcome to the gymnasium of choosing. That's the only way you're going to grow in your powers of discernment because ultimately what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to know, no, that is good even if it doesn't look good or feel good, and that is evil even though it looks really, really attractive. Okay, so we're going to do a pop quiz. Here we go. Gonna check your feelings. This first one, I went to a movie with a, a group of friends this summer and uh, this trailer played. We'll see how you feel about it. we've met before. All right, we'll pause there. Okay, I went to this movie with a guy who, he was in his 50s, and he literally put his head down and covered his eyes with his hands. And he just said, that's the devil. I want to tell you something. Do you know what the number one grossing genre of film is in our country? Horror. Horror. Welcome to Nineveh, y'all. Welcome to Nineveh. Okay. Okay. One that's maybe a little less scary. How do you feel, oops, how do you feel about this? Ooh, I bought a box, I bought a box, I did. It's true, it's in my pantry right now. I bought a box! All right, here's another one. This is a Japanese man who has made a $16,000 dog costume. The name of his YouTube channel is I Want to Be an Animal. How do you feel about that? That's maybe a little harder, right? And maybe some of you are like, well, don't judge him. Don't judge him. Hebrews says that's your job. We don't have time to listen to this beautiful symphony. You can listen to Holst's Planet Suite, Jupiter. If your soul does not grow by listening to that, um, you know your feelings are off. (laughs) I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm dead serious. How do you feel about this? Sometimes things are obviously evil and obviously good. But the tricky thing, and you can think about this for yourself, if you look in the mirror, do you see yourself rightly? I was talking to somebody the other day who's a dietitian, and she said, actually, the best way for you to get a sense of what you look like, and I've actually heard an art teacher say the same thing, is to actually turn the camera upside down and look at yourself upside down. That's how broken our sense of perception is we have to literally turn something upside down to have a hope of seeing it rightly. If, if you want to learn how to draw, you're interested in that, there's a, there's a great book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, and that's actually the first exercise that that teacher tells you to do. Because you think you know what someone looks like, and you'll botch it. You'll do a lousy job with the art. Because like reality as it is, is extremely distorted to us. It is so hard to see things rightly. Socrates uses an example in the Republic, um, and it's a very modern-sounding example. He says, you know, just the other day I was walking in Athens, and I saw a chariot that had wrecked, and I saw bodies. And he said, I realized that there was something going on in my soul, and I realized that my soul was in conflict because part of me wanted to look and to see the carnage and to, like, you know, gape at what had happened, and, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. And part of me wanted to look away. And so I can perceive that there's some, there are multiple things inside of me happening at the same time. Again, maybe you or your kids have this with children, right? Uh, with cereal. Right? Like, what is good cereal? I grew up in a house with uh, Lucky Charms. Even when I went to summer camp, I would go and I would not eat meat or protein, which is what I should have been eating. Right, Because I was in Austin, Texas, where it's hot as all get out. So I should have been doing that. But what did I do? I went to the cereal area because they had Lucky Charms, those little sad little bowls of Lucky Charms. Because that's what I've been trained to think was good. Or again, maybe you recognize some of these people that looked very good from the outside, depending on where and when they saw, you saw them. Three of the four went to prison. One can barely walk. But we live in a society that likes to, to, to say to us with our current longings and our current inclinations, hey, whatever you want, you can get it. Uh, I was in the airport last week and I saw this from Auntie Anne's. It says, we have your cravings covered. <laughs> this was a brilliant little advertisement. So I took a picture. Whatever you want, whatever you think is good, let, just go for it. Just No offense to Auntie Anne's. I went to the mall recently. I don't know if y'all have been to the mall recently, but I got sent out on a, a mission to find a jersey. And I, I, I hadn't been in the mall, I guess, in a long time. But I was amazed at, at not only how many like, visual things there were, right? come and shop at our store, but even like the perfumes and the candles and the scents. Like We are constantly being bombarded with different people's ideas of, man, this is good. This is what you need. If you're going to live well, you need these things. And so what do we do? We live in a country that, that in a system that allows us to just pursue whatever we want. And we live at a time when everybody will tell you whatever you want is good. And so to wrap up, I just have a couple of suggestions I want to make as far as how do you, how do, you do some good practice? In a Hebrews chapter 5 kind of way, what does it look like to get into the gymnasium of good so that you might rightly discern and be mature? The first one, You have to know what good is. You have to decide the destination. I love this little exchange from Alice in Wonderland with the Cheshire Cat. Alice asks him, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And the cat says, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. Alice, I don't much care where. Then it doesn't matter where you want to go. If You don't have a destination. You're always succeeding. As a matter of fact, you're amazing just the way you are because you never went anywhere. You didn't have to go anywhere because you didn't care where you went. But you will get there. And you may not like the where where you get. I think something really important for us and our community, you have to be okay to look ugly. Uh, this guy, cyclist, uh, he's actually winning a stage of the Giro d'Italia in the Alps. This is called a suffer face. And one of my favorite things about cycling is, uh, Freddie Merckx I think said it. He said, uh, the race is always won by the one who can suffer the most. Uh, But this quote comes from an artist. She says, uh, it's impossible to get better and look good at the same time. I'm going to stop there. Can we be okay with ourselves and our children not looking good? That's hard for me. I want to look good. I want to accomplish things. I want to be able to see and go, man, everything you do is awesome. Your children are model children. Everything about you is great. That's why I had to tell you that I spilled coffee on myself. That's because I have to mortify myself. I don't want to hide it because I want to hide it. So don't be afraid to be ugly. Another thing that I think is really helpful to move towards the good is uh, you've got to slow down. The tortoise beats the hare every time. Maybe we we don't run our households. Maybe we walk our households and rest our households. Maybe we're okay just saying, you know what? I I just need to think about that. I know how it is. Somebody texts you something and you're like, oh no, I got to get back to them immediately. Maybe not. Maybe we can just sleep on it. Maybe we can give it time. It's really hard to make good decisions without good thinking. And good thinking takes time. I thought this was really important. Uh, In weightlifting, you want to figure out what's going to happen when you can't get the weight up. Okay? If you can't fail safely, you're in deep trouble because you will fail. You will fall short. We all fall short. I fall short as a teacher, as a husband, as a father, as a son. I did remember to call my mom yesterday on her birthday, so that's a win. Good job, me. You will fail, and you, you want to try to fail in little ways. You, you don't want to drop that weight right onto your skull. Uh, you want to be nimble. This comes from a business book. Uh, beautiful book if you want some, some business analogies to life called uh, How Will You Measure Your Life. Um, it's a great book. Ooh, America. You're going to have to learn how to choose and how to rest in that choice.